would open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, and in your lessons, we'll be looking at lesson number 57. But this is a this is a fascinating study as we begin Matthew chapter 13. A very very critical, important, fascinating passage of the Scripture. Matthew 13, the parables, the mystery kingdom parables. All right, let's go to our Lord first of all in prayer, and then we'll get right into our our lesson. If you would bow with me. Our Heavenly Father, we praise your name, hallowed is your name. Great are you. Great are all your attributes. We thank you and praise you, Lord, that you are a holy God, that you are a just God, that you are a loving God. We thank you, Father, that your kingdom one day will come here upon earth as it is established already in heaven. We pray, Father, that you would give us our daily bread, that sweet manna from heaven, the spiritual food for our souls, that you would do that for us today, that you would forgive us of our debts as we, Lord, willingly will forgive others of their debts and their sins against us. We pray, Father, that you would keep us from the evil one, that you would not lead us into temptation, but that you would deliver us. We pray, Lord, because yours is the kingdom and yours is the power and yours is the glory forever and ever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. At the conclusion of our last lesson, entitled The Misunderstood Messiah, we saw that not only was Jesus misunderstood by his foes, his enemies, but even more sadly, he was also misunderstood by his own family who came to get him because they thought he was what? beside himself, that he was out of his right mind. We read that in Mark 3.21. When he was told of their presence, remember, he looked at his disciples and his other followers around him, and he said to them, Behold, you are my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Here was a mini picture. We talked about this. This was a mini picture of what Christ was doing with the nation of Israel. Her official leaders had just accused him, like his family, of also being out of his right mind because they had accused him of doing all of his miraculous works in the power of who? Beelzebub or Satan. In other words, they were stating that he only thought he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Actually, he was either a madman or he was, just, he was an out-and-out out liar. So they were saying he was, and he was satanic. He was not only a madman, he was a satanic madman. So in his statement regarding his family, he was really breaking off a relationship with those related by blood, and he was establishing a new family relationship, not based on blood, but on belief, based on faith and obedience, those who would do the will of his Father, of God, which is to believe on his only begotten Son. So this then becomes the basis of what he reveals in the next chapter. That was all in Matthew chapter 12, and now that becomes the basis of what is revealed to us in Matthew chapter 13. If he severs his relationship with Israel, those of his own bloodline, because they have rejected him, then what is going to happen or what is going to be the nature, I should say, of the new relationship that he was going to be establishing. 
And this is the whole thrust of the seven parables that we will be looking at for the next several weeks. There are actually eight parables in Matthew chapter 13, but the the eighth one has to do with the responsibility of um, those in the new mystery form of the kingdom, and we'll discuss that. But seven have to do with the mystery kingdom specifically and its character. So the teaching contained in Matthew 13 and also in parallel passages over in Mark 4, verses 1 to 29, and Luke 8, verses 4 to 15, the teaching occurs in the middle of what is known as the Lord's busy day. The Lord had two prominently busy days in his life. One of them was this particular day, and the other, does anybody remember the other busy day? If you Tuesday of the Passion Week was his other busy day. We will spend probably a year on Tuesday of the Passion Week. So much happened. But this was a, this, um, the day he spoke, Matthew 13, was another busy day. So far on this busy day, he had healed a blind and dumb demoniac. Remember that? That was in Matthew chapter 12. And the people were, had their socks knocked off. They were so amazed at that miracle. He then had been accused of working performing his miracles in the power of Satan, as we just mentioned, and he had defended himself with three irrefutably strong arguments, and then he had seriously warned against committing, what, the unforgivable or unpardonable sin, followed by yet another warning about the danger of attempting moral reform without the spiritual rebirth. And that was in the parable of the empty house. Well, still on this busy day, he then entered into a home. We don't know whose home, where it was or anything about the home, but he did enter into a home and was there visited and misunderstood by his own family, which we also just talked about. So verse 1 of chapter 13 then begins, if you'll look at it, by saying that same day, that same day, which if we trace it, back is this very same busy day. It says, that same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. This was probably the Sea of Galilee, so most Bible commentators say that the home was probably Peter's home, the same home where the paralytic had been lowered through the roof. Well, in light of the context And the fact that we are at a turning point in the life of our Lord and his relationship with the nation of Israel, these small details that are given to us, especially in verse 1 here, are very significant. And you might not think so. You know, you you just might read that and say, well, that's not too significant. He uh, went out of a house and he sat by the seashore. Well, it's interesting that he leaves the house and goes to the sea. The sea in the scripture, symbolizes the Gentile nations. Land symbolizes Israel. Sea, the sea, symbolizes the Gentile nations. From this point on, we are going to see less and less of Jesus ministering within homes, houses. The house, we could say, symbolizes the house of Israel, the house of Judah. He left the house of Judah And he went to the seaside. Do you get the picture? 
We're going to see less and less of him ministering within synagogues and within Jewish homes. And we're going to see more and more from this point on of his presence in the outdoors. We're going to see him either at the seaside, as in this picture, where the crowd was pressing on him so much that he actually got into a boat and shoved off a little bit. Somebody must have been holding the side of the boat. He sat down and he taught from the boat so that everybody could hear him. We're going to see him more at the seaside. We're going to see him outdoors. We're going to see him, you know, for example, when he feeds the 5,000 and the 4,000. We're going to see him in the mountains or in the open plains of Israel. And all of this, we could call this a natural parable, a parable from nature and, and the setting. All of this demonstrates his turning from Israel, the house of Israel, to the world, to the Gentile world. In verse 2, the scripture tells us that he began to speak to the great crowd of people from a boat. And again, as I said, this is just so they, because they were pressing in on him and he had to get away from them. And um, this would be good because he'd be out in the sea and the slope went straight up from the sea. So the crowd almost had a, um, yeah, an inclined auditorium so that they could hear him very well speaking from the boat amphitheater that's the word I was thinking trying to think of it tells us in verse 3 that he spoke to them in parables and actually if you look ahead over at verse 34 of this same chapter you'll find that he only spoke to them in parables it says without a parable spake he not unto them so he only spoke in parables so at this point we need to understand exactly what a parable is. We've had some parables already, but I don't know that we've actually talked about them too much. The word parable, which is parabole in the Greek, means to throw alongside of or place beside with a view to comparison. A parable is an illustration which is thrown alongside of a teaching to make it more concrete you know, to make it not so abstract, to make it concrete, more applicable to common day life. And Jesus was a master at using parables. He was a parabolic master. He would take things from everyday life and he would use them to explain, explain to the people deep spiritual, deep profoundly spiritual and moral truths. And this would help the people to not only remember the teaching better. Sometimes when a pastor teaches, you hardly remember anything he said except the story he gave to illustrate his teaching, right? So this would help the people not only to remember the teaching better, but would help them to apply it to their own lives where the rubber meets the road, help them to apply it to their own lives uh, better, more easily. And it would make the Lord's teaching more interesting. You know, little stories do indeed make, make teaching more interesting. We all would admit that. And more real to the people. A parable, therefore, is a literary device um, which teaches by transferring a truth from the physical known world to the invisible, unknown, spiritual realm of life. It presents a picture. Remember that. It presents a picture, but not a precept so much. Sometimes people will try to dig too much into a parable and get doctrinal teaching from parables. But remember, it's more of throwing alongside a picture so that someone would understand the teaching. It presents a picture, not a preset. It depicts a doctrine, but it does not determine a doctrine. Now, there are some 
parables, I'm getting on a rabbit trail, some parables that we call parables that really aren't parables. So remember, like the, we call it the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. is not really a parable. It's a true account, a true, because in parables, Jesus never gives real names, and there he did. And when he says a certain man, like, um, I think it's the parable of, maybe even the prodigal son, he says a certain man. Whenever he says certain person, it is not, it's a true story, which is something I learned this week. So remember that. Okay, the disciples asked the Lord, if you look in verse 10, they asked him, I'll be reading this in a little while, why he was now speaking in parables and only in parables to the, to the multitudes. And he answered them in verses 11 through 15. That's really sort of a parenthetical uh, phrase there from 11 to 15 where he answers their question by stating that he was using parables for two reasons. One was to reveal the truth of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven to those who had ears to hear them. And secondly, to conceal this truth from those whose hearts had waxed cold or were indifferent, who, who have ears but do not really want to hear the truth. Without understanding the context of such a statement, this answer of the Lord's would seem to us to be really pretty cruel. You know, why, why would he be speaking so that people would not understand him? But we know from our study, don't we? that Christ had been presenting his uh, messianic credentials to Israel for about one and a half years now. But the nation, under the leadership of the, of the Pharisees and the scribes, pronounced at this point in time, now they have already pronounced that Jesus had, their final conclusion was that he had performed his works by the power of Satan, not by God's power. So he told them that he had no more miracles for them. Remember that? He said, I have no more signs for you, but the sign of Jonah, which we know is the sign of the resurrection, which would be too late for them as a nation because by the time they would receive that sign, the sign of his resurrection out of the belly of the earth, three days and three nights, they would have already rejected him totally. They would have already stated that they would not have this man to reign over them and they would have already crucified him. So that sign would come too late. So he'd already said that he would have no more works for them, no more signs for them. And now in verses 13 to 15, he was saying that he not only would have no more miracles or no more works for them, but he would have no more words for them. Wow, that's really harsh, isn't it? But they had, after all, already committed the unpardonable sin, hadn't they? Now he still has words for people who have ears to hear, but for the nation under its leaders, um, I should say the official leadership of the nation, they had already closed up their ears. They did not have ears to hear. It says, because they seeing see not and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And that, by the way, is exactly, this is a fulfillment of prophecy, that they would have eyes and not see and ears and not hear. This was what Isaiah the prophet had predicted in Isaiah 6, verses 9 to 10. This would be the way of the Jews when their Messiah came. So here again is fulfillment of prophecy. He had said that they would refuse to hear, and Isaiah said this. He said 700 years before this that Israel would have uh, refused to hear, refused to see, and refused to understand with their hearts and turn to God for healing 
because she would intentionally close her eyes and plug her ears and harden her heart to her own Messiah in unbelief. So by using parables, then, Jesus was judging their unbelief. Not only was he fulfilling Messianic scripture, but he was, he was judging their unbelief. God does not reward unbelief. Did you ever know that? <laughs> he doesn't. He does not reward unbelief. So he was judging their unbelief, for he was teaching now with a literary device that concealed from the truth from those who had no divine vision and guidance to help them understand. We're going to notice, of course, that he does interpret the parables for who? For his own disciples and his other, um, those with willing ears to hear, his other followers, those who desired to learn, maybe even an unbeliever who had ears to hear, you know, and was in the crowd. He would interpret for those people. And, um, and they would understand as best they could at this point in time. Not fully, but they would have some understanding. And remember, they still don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, but they would get it better than the others because they were willing to learn. So Christ is using parables because his crowds were mixed at this point in time, still mixed with believers and unbelievers, those who had received him and those who had rejected him. Although the rejectors still were tagging along. He still has big crowds. They're still tagging along out of curiosity to maybe get a free handout, to get healed, to bring one of their loved ones to get healed, or um, you know, just to get a thrill from watching him perform his miracles. He did not separate this multitude into uh, those who were believers and those who were unbelievers. And we're going to see that in the Mystery Kingdom parables as we look at the wheat and tares. And he says this isn't the age to do the separation. He didn't separate the believers and the unbelievers. He simply used a method of teaching which the unreceptive listener would not understand. All right, let's look now at uh, Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17. I'm going to skip the parable itself for now and talk about the purpose of parables. So let's look at verses 10 to 17. It says, And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. There's the reveal, conceal, the two purposes of parables. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given. And he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And remember, that's willful on their part. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, or Isaiah, which saith, by hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. Oh, let's see, I'll go down to 17. All right, now here's a, here's a blessed beatitude, another beatitude. Put a little star by this 
He says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Many of the prophets in the Old Testament days would have loved to have heard what the Lord was going to teach in these uh, mystery kingdom parables because they, this was a mystery. It was something unknown in the Old Testament days. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. What was the specific purpose of the teaching contained within this cluster of parables found in Matthew chapter 13? Well, the answer is found in verse 13 where Jesus said, It is given unto you to know what? The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are one and the same, so don't think they're two separate things. Kingdom of heaven. The parables, in other words, were given in order to teach truth concerning the kingdom program. Both John the Baptist and Jesus, remembered, had gone around preaching the coming kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Yes. Is it verse 11? Okay, I'm sorry. Verse 11 is where he said it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Thank you for correcting it. Jesus was the king of this coming kingdom, and now he had been officially, and he had been officially offering Israel the kingdom of God all along, which is discussed a great deal, by the way, in the Old Testament scriptures. They have a lot to say about the literal millennial kingdom of God here on earth. It's a kingdom in which the Messiah would reign. He would sit on his throne in Jerusalem in righteousness. Peace would finally come to earth. And that is the only time this earth will see peace, true peace, is when he is reigning over it on a literal throne in Jerusalem. Israel would become finally God's people and the center of worship of the earth would be there in Jerusalem. It would become the capital of the world. And other things such as the lion would lay down with the lamb and children would be able to play in snake pits and I don't know about that still, but <laughs> in faith, I have to believe that. And what else? Um, men would beat their swords into plowshares and all that sort of thing. Many, many aspects of the um, messianic kingdom are given to us in the Old Te- Testament scripture. It would be a time when the curse of Genesis 3 would be removed. It would practically be utopia on earth. So at the Lord's first coming, he offered this kingdom. This was a, this was a um, bona fide offer. He was offering them this kingdom to Israel. If she had accepted him as her king, what would have happened? They would have had that literal kingdom would have come on earth. Now, some people say, well, what about the cross? The cross would have still ha- happened. It would have had to have happened because we are not saved without a propitiation, without an atonement for our sins. He had, that's the whole theme in the Old Testament, you know, the lamb had to be, sl- be slain. He would still have been crucified, but Israel would not have crucified him. Rome would have crucified him. Eventually, because he would have become too much of a threat to Rome, to Caesar. So he still would have been crucified, and he still would have resurrected on the third day, and right then and there, the kingdom would have been established. The literal kingdom. You get it? Okay. 
but the cross, he still would have had to have gone to the cross. But uh, as we know, the people, the nation, um, had, they, they would fully reject him. And, uh, and we see that by her attitude, which has already been revealed through her spiritual leaders in Matthew chapter 12. Well, the logical conclusion then is that if the king is rejected, the kingdom which he came to set, set up would, would not be established. You can't have the kingdom without the king, Right? So, and we know this because in Matthew 21, 43, he said that the kingdom of God would be taken from the nation of Israel and would be given to a people who would, would produce the fruits of righteousness. And who is that people? The church, which is predominantly Gentile. And in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39, he prophesied that Jerusalem... Because she rejected her Messiah, she would come under judgment and she would fall to the Gentiles, which, of course, did literally happen in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. So from this point, Jesus no longer publicly announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. Neither does John the Baptist, because where is he? He's in prison and he's about to be beheaded. No more message of the kingdom of heaven being at hand. So what then happens to God's promises to Israel about the literal millennial kingdom? Will he just forget those promises? No, of course not. All the promises of God will be kept. Although Israel may not have been faithful, yet who is and always will be faithful? God always abideth faithful. His word is true. And it cannot be broken. He cannot forfeit a promise. And he made many promises to Israel about the kingdom. The literal kingdom of God on earth was merely what? Postponed. It was postponed. And we know according to the book of Revelation that it will be established at the time of the Lord's second coming. When the Jews who remain alive after the tribulation period, those Jews will see him whom they have pierced and finally mourn for him as their only son and they will accept him they will no longer reject him but they will receive him as their king and savior and then the kingdom will commence the 1000 literal uh, year kingdom here on earth but in the meantime as a result of the postponement of the kingdom during the lord's first coming a new form of the kingdom was going to be established. And the new form of the kingdom is what is described by the Lord here in Matthew chapter 13. That was a long way of explaining that, wasn't it? This is the mystery form of the kingdom. This new form actually began at the cross. It began at the time of his rejection. The mystery kingdom began at the cross, and it will continue on through the church age, which is what you and I are in right now. When did the church age begin? The day of Pentecost. And we'll end at on the day of the rapture. That's the church age. So this mystery kingdom includes the church age, but is not exclusive of the church age. It actually began at the cross and will end at the Lord's second coming. So the church age is within this period of the mystery kingdom. Um, but for our purposes at this point in time, it's one and the same. So this new form of the kingdom will exist from his rejection to his return. That's an easy way to remember it, from his rejection to his return. And therefore includes 
our age right now, the church age. What is the name of this new form of the kingdom? Well, we are told in verse 11 that it is the mystery form of the kingdom. And there are some other names. There are many. That's sometimes it's called the interlude kingdom or the interregum. Interregum. Interregnum. Excuse me. I don't know my Latin very well. Um, it's called the parenthesis kingdom. But let's use the one that the Lord used, and we'll call it the mystery form of the kingdom. And the word mystery, you know, when it is used in the New Testament, refers to a revelation of a truth that had previously been unknown or hidden. The new form of the kingdom was something not revealed to the Old Testament prophets, something that was a mystery to them. Most of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament pointed to the Lord's second coming and uh, referred to the establishment of his literal earthly 1,000-year reign. And only a possible hint here and there are suggested about this mystery kingdom, which would exist beyond and during the church age. Of course, they knew nothing about the church, did they? The church is referred to also as a mystery that Jew and Gentile together would be in a body called the church. What else was a mystery to the Old Testament prophets? The, um, the, the, the destruction and the remaking of, the, of the heaven and earth. They did, didn't know anything about that. They didn't really understand the incarnation was a mystery, the virgin birth and the incarnation. Although they were given hints, but they really didn't have it all figured out. They were, they're called mysteries in, in the uh, New Testament. So what is this mystery kingdom? Well, it is the kingdom of God that exists within the hearts of true believers while the king is in absentia, (laughs) while the king is absent, while the king is not physically present. Even though Jesus is physically absent from this earth right now, yet he rules, still rules over the hearts of of those who have willingly submitted themselves to him. Is he sitting as king on the throne of your heart? I hope so. Even though he's not here, he still rules in the hearts of those who believe in it. He rules through the Holy Spirit in the minds and the souls of those who belong to him. Even though Satan is currently the usurping ruler over this world, Christ is still king. Just as David was still king, even though... Absalom was trying to overthrow him, and he was, he was off in hiding. He was still, he's still constantly referred to as King David. And we know that Jesus Christ is still king. There are two kingdoms, and that's where sometimes people get confused. There's a universal kingdom where God is God, and he's on his throne at all points in time, and he is God over hell. Satan is not the king of hell. Did you know that? God is. Everything. He is, the, he is the king over the whole universe. That has never ceased. But we're talking about the mediatory kingdom down here on earth is temporarily has been usurped. And it, God, Satan is now the god of this world. But even still, Christ has always ruled as king over this earth through those who are his true believers. All right. And right now he's ruling through his church. I know it gets kind of confusing, but don't, don't confuse the kingdom here on earth 
with the universal kingdom where he's always, he's never in abstention over the universal kingdom. So the nation had rejected her Messiah and he severed his relationship with her by saying that he was going to establish a new relationship based on faith and obedience. And that is going to be the essence and the character of the new form of the kingdom. So as we come to Matthew 13, the Lord uses parables to teach his followers the character of the new form of this kingdom. It was going to be very different from the form of the literal kingdom predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. The king would not be on an earthly throne there in Jerusalem. Peace would not prevail over this world. Um, He would not rule in righteousness. Jerusalem would not be the worship capital of the world. The lion would not lay down with the lamb. Don't you dare let your children play in snake pits yet. You know, you don't see men um, bending their swords into plowshares, do you? It's a different form of the kingdom right now. And there are seven parables given in the Lord's talk here to the multitudes from a boat on probably the Sea of Galilee. And each one of these gives to us the basic essential characteristics of the kingdom as it exists in this present age. So this is apropos for you and me. And that's why it's important for us to look at it. Now, the first one is known as the parable of the sower. You're very familiar with it, I am sure, but let's look at it now. As I read, first of all, I'm going to read the parable itself in verses 3 to 9. And then I'm going to pick up the interpretation of it, which will be in verse 18, verses 18 to 23. All right? It says, And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them, but other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Verse 9, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, here's the interpretation of it, if you'll go down to verse 18. And notice how many times he says the word hear all throughout this, even what we just read in verses 11 to uh, 17, just if you want to circle how many times he says the word hear or hearing, it's amazing. I think it's 19 times. All right, he says in verse 18, hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. Now this is only given to his disciples and other believers and those with willing ears. And we find from Mark in the parallel account that this was done privately in a home, this interpretation part. This interpretation was not given to the crowds. All right, he says, Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, what is the seed? We just were told. The word, the word of the kingdom. And understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one. And the wicked one over in Luke's account is called the devil. And in Mark's parallel account, he's referred to Satan as Satan. So we know who this is. Then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. Oh, what are the soils? What do the soils represent that the seed was sown in? 
So we're just told. We're inter- this is interpreted for us so we don't have to figure this out ourselves. The heart, okay? The seed is the word. The soils are the hearts of, belie- of uh, people. So he said, and the wicked one in this first one catches away that which was sown in the heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside, okay? That's what we're calling rocky, I mean, uh, roadside or roadway soil, all right? Second, second type of soil. He says, but he that receiveth the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself. Notice those words, in himself. But dureth, or endureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution, and over in Mark it says, or affliction, and lusts of other, no, that's another place. All right, affliction or tribulation or persecution ariseth because of what? The word, by and by he is offended or scandalized. He also that receiveth the seeds among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the cares of this world, and also it says in Mark, the lusts of other things, and the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. But he that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word, and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit, and bringeth forth some an hundred, some sixty, some thirty. Okay. In this cluster of Matthew 13 parables, we see that Jesus used illustrations from very common things, especially to the people of that day who were primarily agricultural. He used concrete things from nature, which they could really easily understand and relate to, such as soil and seeds, and a man broadcasting those seeds or sowing those seeds. He talked about fields and birds that come and snatch away the seeds. And he talks about thorns and weeds and uh, rocks and sun and wheat and tares as we get into some of the other parables and mustard seeds and harvest time and leaven or yeast and hidden treasure and pearls. All these very, very familiar things are used in his parables to teach spiritual principles. But notice that Jesus only gave the parable itself to the crowd. He did not give the interpretation of the parable to the crowd, only to his own disciples. And um, if you want to read Mark 4.10, you can see how that was done privately. I'm not going to have time to read the parallel accounts. All right, so the first feature of this new form of the kingdom, which includes, remember, the church age, is that it will be characterized by sowers sowing seed. Now, this was such a familiar sight to people of the nation of Israel that Jesus didn't need to stop and explain anything further about that actual action. A man with a seed bag hanging over his shoulder, sowing seed onto the ground, was a very common sight to the Jewish people, as it would be to people back then all around the world. Um, Now, while this man went about his business of broadcasting or sowing the seed, it fell onto how many different types of soils? Four different types. Some of it fell beside the road or onto the road. Now, back in those days, they didn't have fences um, to separate property lines. 
What they had instead was real narrow little um, pathways. They were three, three to four foot pathways between farmers' fields. And actually, the farmers would use those pathways to get to their respective fields. And also, travelers would use those fields. And we have an example of this when the Lord was walking along on a Sabbath day with his disciples, and they, they stopped to pluck some uh, ears of corn and eat the grains off the ears of corn. Right? Remember that? Well, they were on one of those narrow pathways, and, and the corn would have been on both sides of them, very close like this. It would be easy for them just to do that. And they, they were allowed to do that. Uh, except on Sabbath days, as we learned. But anyway, um, so that's how their properties were separated, was with, was with these little narrow paths. And um, this type of soil is what we call, I think in your books I call it roadside soil, but I got to thinking that's not so good because that sounds like it's on the side of the road. It really should be roadway soil. So if you want to change that, I'm going to change it in the next edition of this book, roadway soil. Naturally, if you think about it, the soil on these narrow, treaded roadways uh, would be packed down very firmly. This, these pathways were not tilled up for sowing. So they'd be packed down very firmly, almost like uh, pavement. They'd be as hard as pavement because of the, of the many people who would travel on them. The feet and the weight of those who walked on them would have made those paths as hard as pavement. Obviously, because the ground was so hard, the seed that fell, as the sowers, you know, just right nearby sowing seed, some of the seeds are going to fall on those pathways. But naturally, because the ground's so hard on the pathways, the seed wouldn't penetrate into, into the ground of those pathways. But it would lie exposed up on the top, where it would become, the seeds would become easy pickings for who? Well, we're interpreting it already if we say Satan, but for the fowl of the air. And one of my trips that I was making recently, I don't even remember where I was, but I was passing a farm, and there was a guy out there tilling up the ground, getting ready to plant his crop. And what was behind him? Multitude. I couldn't believe. I think they were seagulls, and we weren't even close to the uh, ocean. I thought, man, where did they? But they just seemed to know, and there they were. So these seeds that fall on the pathway become easy pickings, pickings for birds to come by and eat. And that is exactly what Jesus said happens to the seed sown on the hard ground of the road. It is devoured by the fowls of the air who follow the sower very closely. And we know if we jump ahead that fowls here represent Satan's emissaries. All right, secondly, in verses 5 and 6, we learn about the seed that fell upon rocky soil. And this does not refer to ground with lots of rocks on it. Because... The farmers had better sense than not to go around and pick up the rocks on the top of the soil. So it doesn't refer to rocky soil that you can see the rocks. They picked up the rocks. Rather, it refers to soil that covers or hides from view an underlying uh, uh, bed of rock, which is located deeper than their plows would go. Their plows back then weren't as sophisticated as our modern equipment, so they only would go so far. But there would be an, and in Israel, much of the land has this underlying bed of limestone rock. So when seed would fall upon this second type, this type of rocky ground, it would penetrate into the, um, the surface soil because there was a layer of, of soil on top of that bedrock of limestone, it would penetrate and it would quickly, these seeds would quickly spring up because all the nutrition from that 
thin layer of soil would go into the plant. So the plant would spring up even higher than other seed that didn't have a, a layer of limestone under it. Because, see, all the nutrition is going into the plant rather than into the root. The root can only go so far. So, boom, they'd go up. These plants would go up really quickly. And uh, the root, the, but the roots, the roots couldn't reach and absorb the moisture. We actually read about moisture over in Luke's account. He talks about how the roots couldn't get any moisture. And they couldn't get any nourishment. So, when the sun comes up, in the heat of the day, what happens with these new plants that look so good at first? Because they have no deep root structure, they, they wither away and die. Now, the third type of soil upon which seed fell in this parable is what we're calling reprobate soil. <clears throat> Verse 7, a reprobate is one who gives in fully to sin. This soil was infested greatly with what? Thorns, thorns, weeds and thorns, uh, and that is a direct result in this world of sin. Probably, after cultivating this type of soil, it appeared to be good. Seeds began to grow. The seeds that were sown by the sower, so did also some other seeds which had been hidden in the soil. You know, these other seeds were natural to the soil weren't they? The word of God is not natural. It is sown by the sower. But the other seeds were natural to it, so they just came up automatically. These seeds produced, these natural seeds produced weeds and thorns. You don't have to go out into your garden and sow weeds and thorns, do you? (laughs) And they took all the nutrition from the soil and soon choked out the seed which was sown by the sower. Now, the fourth type, and we're so glad for this fourth type of soil, the fourth type of soil which the seed fell on was good soil, and we're calling it ready soil. It was properly prepared soil. The farmer had thought ahead, and he'd actually put some kind of a a weed killer on this soil. Um, And he tested the ground, make sure there was no limestone bedrock underneath, and it was properly prepared soil. And it was far from the roadways, the pathways, so it was not too firmly packed to be penetrated by the seed. It was loose. It had been tilled. The ground had been tilled. It was loose and soft, and uh, it was ready. It was, it was ready. So because of the good conditions of this ready soil, Jesus said that it did what? Brought forth good fruit. Some brought forth a hundredfold, some 30, some 60. In Jesus' day, even a tenfold crop was considered practically miraculous. You know, one out of every ten seeds forming a, a crop that would produce fruit. So this was this is considered amazingly miraculous. So we have, think about this, the roadway soil, there was no penetration of the seed. The roadway soil, no penetration. The rocky soil, there was no permanence, sprung up but it didn't last, no permanence. The reprobate soil, no preeminence, didn't have preeminence. The, the, the thorns and weeds took over. And now we have the ready soil, which has production. So that's a good way to remember it, too. 
Notice that Jesus concluded the telling of this first parable with the words in verse 9 where he said, Who have ears to hear, let him hear. What does that remind you of? Anybody who's ever studied the final book of the Bible? Exactly. In Revelation and chapters 2 and 3, after the Lord speaks to each of the seven churches, how many parables do we have here in Matthew 13? Seven. And seven churches and seven parables, talking about the church age, essentially. Really an interesting parallel, too. If we were go- I, I don't know if we'll have time to do that, but each of these parables perfectly fits in with the seven churches. But after each one of those letters to the seven churches, he would say, he that hath ears, let him hear what the Spirit hath to say to the churches. So he says here, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Um, and it's interesting, too, I, did, I told you I didn't have time to read Mark 4 and Luke 8, the parallel passages to this. But if we compare this closing admonition in each of these three gospel accounts, it is fascinating. Because over in, um, and this is important because it is important for people to hear what God is saying to them, isn't it? Very, very important for us to hear. Why? Because faith cometh by Hearing, and hearing by what? The seed, the word of God, the incorruptible word of God. Here in Matthew, he says, who hath ears, let him hear. In Mark 4.24, the Holy Spirit recorded his warning there as as being, take heed what ye hear. And in Luke 8.18, it says, take heed how you hear. So it's not only very important that we allow ourselves to hear the voice of God as he speaks to us through his word, but it's also very important that we be cautious about what we hear. There are many, many false teachers in the world who use biblical vocabulary but are teaching the lies of Satan, and we must develop spiritual discernment to recognize the false from the true. We must also take caution as to how we hear. If we are careful to hear the truth of God's word in belief and not in doubt or criticism or indifference, then we will receive even more truth. Can people be hard of listening? Oh, yeah. They can hear and, and really not hear. I know this is, seems to be especially true with children and husbands sometimes. <laughs> Not not we wives, of course, <laughs> or mothers. However, if the truth of God is heard is not heard in belief, a, uh, a person will lose what little knowledge of truth he did have. And that is true. It's, it is only those who receive the king in faith who can really understand and profit spiritually from both his teaching and his person and his power. And you know, the more... The more light and the more truth you have, the more he will give to you. It's, it's just that's what happens. If you, if you willingly want to have more light and more truth, he will continually give that to you. When men trust in God's message of grace available to them through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for their sins, then they receive the free gift of salvation and more and more truth is open unto them as they read and obey and study God's word. That's why a new believer, you know, just tell them, be patient. You have to build precept upon precept. If you don't understand something, just be patient and keep studying 
pretty soon it will all begin to fall together. And then I told you he gives the, his disciples and you and I. This, this beatitude is for us. He gives us a great beatitude in verse 16 where he said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. It is so critically important for us to have ears which are willingly receptive to the voice of God. That Jesus in this parable chapter of Matthew 13, as I said when we were reading it, uses the word hear 19 times. Hear or hearing. It's very important in the mystery kingdom that we're living in that we have ears to hear. You know what the final pre-resurrection miracle was that Jesus performed? Pre-crucifixion miracle that Jesus performed? His final miracle? Right. He healed an ear. The ear is very, very important. Hearing is very, very important. And he says that, uh, that the things that his followers were to see and hear about this new form of the kingdom were things that the Old Testament prophets, they, they really wanted to know these things. Not only the prophets, but other righteous men like Abraham. I mean, they just had to see them from afar off and have faith. They didn't really understand it all. Like, like we have this wonderful privilege of understanding. They would have greatly desired to see and hear what the Lord would speak in this, in this chapter particularly. But they didn't have the revelation of the new form of the kingdom and the additional illumination of the indwelling teaching of the ministry of the Holy Spirit like you and I have. So we are indeed very privileged. We are, we are blessed indeed. But to whom much is given, much is required. All right, let's talk about the interpretation now. To the 12 apostles, apostles and probably a few faithful followers, he gave the interpretation. And um, notice, this is one, if you go ahead and read the rest of the chapter, you will notice that this is one, the only one of the parables in this chapter, which does not begin with the Lord's words, the kingdom of heaven is like unto. The other six parables all begin with those words, the kingdom of heaven is like unto. But this first parable doesn't begin that way, and that's because this parable describes how the new kingdom form of heaven on earth is going to begin. How is it going to begin? By the sowing of the seed, the preaching of the word in the soils of people's hearts. The seed, we are told in Mark 4:14 and Luke 8:11, is the word of God. No doubt about it. We know what the seed is. It's the word of God. Why would Jesus compare God's word to seed? <clears throat> well, if you think about it for a minute, the word is living and powerful, isn't it? <clears throat> As it tells us in Hebrews 4.12, it is so much different, so much more different than the mere words of men. The word of God is, has hidden life within it. It is life. Just like a small seed. You know, not even the most intelligent scientist or the greatest inventor could ever create a seed. Even the simplest seed that is in existence. They can't invent seed. If we lost all the seeds in the whole world, no scientist could replace any of them. Same thing with the word of God. If it was taken from us, we could, never, we could not have it again. Aren't you glad that it's here forever and that it is incorruptible? Only God can create seeds which reproduce themselves 
just like God, only God, could have created the word that brings life, the, the gospel that brings life and is rep- reproduced from one believer to another as he shares it. Just as the power of a new plant's life is in that little seed, so is the power of the new birth in the word of God. One commentator mentioned the interesting fact that the Bible, which is the written word, serves as the husk of the seed, you know, the husk around, around the center, which is the kernel. So the Bible, the written word, serves as the husk, and Jesus, who is the living word of God, is the kernel of the seed. He said, and remember Jesus said in John 5, 39, ye search the scriptures, for in them ye think that ye have eternal life. Do we have eternal life just in the husk? Now, where is the real life in Jesus himself? He says, in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The kernel is what speaks of, I mean, the the husk is what speaks of the kernel. Kernel, you could spell it the other way, too, like, you know, (laughs) see. But that, that is an interesting comparison. If one just reads the Bible without seeing Jesus on every page, and that's why some people do not, don't get anything out of the Bible. They read it and they don't, they don't get anything out of it. Because if you don't see Jesus in the Bible, you're not getting the kernel. And the seed isn't going to reproduce. He's, he's the life and the substance and, and, the, and, the, and the author and the subject. There's no life, just husk without the kernel. All right, anyway, that was interesting. Notice that there is nothing mentioned in this parable about any differences in the seeds that were sown. They're all sown from the same source, the same bag slung on the sower's shoulder. The only thing that differed was the condition of the soil upon which the seeds fell. So the main teaching of this parable then centers around the four different soil types, which represent four different types of human hearts, which hear the gospel message. We're not told until the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares, if you look ahead over at verse 37, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week, we're not told who the sower is until we get to that parable, but you've probably all figured it out anyway, that the sower, it says in verse 37, he that soweth a good seed is who? The son of man. In a wider interpretation, of course, sowers are any who believe in the son of man. And, um, you know, we're laborers together with God. Anyone who preaches or teaches or testifies to the gospel on the Lord's behalf, even putting out a track, you know, you're sowing the seed. <clears throat> now, the soils, as we've stated, symbolize four various types of human hearts. The basic soil itself is the same. Remember that. Soil basically is dirt. (laughs) And uh, it consists of what? Dirt, minerals, nutrients, whatever else is in soil. But all the soil is composed of the same things, which when properly conditioned, all soil would support the growth of, of crops. Every human heart has the same original composition. Each of us is naturally sinful, right? But each human heart is also capable of being redeemed and bearing fruit. 
The differences in these four soil types is not, therefore, in the composition of the soil, but rather in its condition. Not in the composition, but in its condition. And, you know, we have run out of time. So I think I'm going to save the, uh, because I'd hate to skimp on this, and I've still got four pages of notes. So we're going to save <laughs> the rest of this parable for next week. All right? And somehow I will figure that out. Can you look ahead and tell them what to go up to in their questions? Because we just, we're, we're going to get into the interpretation of the four soils. So answer up to question number five. All right, well, you all figure out. Do about half of your homework questions. You'll have an easy week. <laughs> All right. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for the patience of your people and for their hunger. Thank you, Lord, for having ears that willingly want to hear and learn of you. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed bless everyone who does want to have more light and more truth, that you would give that to her. Help all of us to continue to grow into your likeness and to know you better and better and to have receptive hearts and not to be discouraged when we sow the seed and we don't see the fruit because, Lord, you have told us that the church is not going to win the whole world. There's only one soil type that will actually receive the, the seed and bear fruit, but that fruit will make up an abundance, make up the difference in a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold. But help us not to look at, at this as a discouragement, but an encouragement to be sowers ourselves of the seed because there are those who are willing and ready to receive. Thank you, Father, for these women. Give them safety as they each travel to their respective places and bring us all back safely next week. For we pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.